the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Wednesday, February 22nd. I am Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Well, as Bert, Herbert Alford for Sundays, from Mary Poppins put it, winds in the east, mist coming in, like something is brewing about to begin. Can't put me finger on what lies in store, but I feel what's to happen all happened before. It's a wind theme there. Maybe we should have some wind music. David. I have David Dahl, my associate producer. Maybe we need, um, well, my friend Steve would thank us if we had Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Uh, Bob Seeger against the wind. Anyway, we'll think about that. Folks, bear with me. I'm about to make a philosophical point, so you don't need to run to your medical dictionaries or anything like that. But about two months ago, I was interviewing Dr. David Murray on the new rise in illegal and dangerous drug use in America. Many of us had been concerned about fentanyl overdose or poisoning deaths. For the past couple years now, today responsible for about 75,000 deaths in America every year just now, with another 40,000 deaths from other dangerous drugs. Fentanyl, by the way, is the number one killer of young adults today. And in that, in, in that interview, Dr. Murray pointed out that if you think fentanyl is bad, just wait until you find out about Trank, he said. He then went on to say we are seeing this thing, Trank, in Philadelphia and Delaware now. Trank is short for a veterinarian-used animal tranquilizer called xylazine. Again, I'm building to a point here. You don't need medical dictionaries. It is, e- it is even more potent than fentanyl. Here's one write-up of what they were noticing with xylazine or trank in Delaware. In some instances, people have sat bent over on a doorstep for so long they cut off blood flow to their legs. That should be horribly painful, but with xylazine, people are waking up too late with hugely swollen, discolored limbs, and they have to be rushed to the hospital to try and save them. But there's sometimes nothing to do but amputate or bury. One user put it this way, Trank is basically zombifying people's bodies. Until nine months ago, I never had wounds, one user said. Now there are holes in my legs and feet. Anyway, Dr. Murray was pointing out, as I said, if you think fentanyl is bad, just wait for the next rush, which will be Trank. As one public health worker in Philadelphia said of his city, quote, it's too late for Philadelphia. It's all over the place now. My message is to make sure it doesn't come to other cities. And guess what? Guess what? That macabre poltergeist is now on the West Coast. Last week, it was reported to very little notice that four people were found dead in San Francisco from Trank. So now it's here. So much for that safe use campaign in San Francisco that tells people if they're going to use drugs like fentanyl, they should start with small doses and do it with friends. Which gets me to my larger philosophical and political point about observing, witnessing, standing idly by, showing callous disregard toward, and now even defending and encouraging not only unhealthy products, but policies. They will grow. They will expand. They will, once infused, Suffuse. They will become endemic. There's something important that needs to be said about neglecting 
to deal with one bad thing or appeasing it, leading to ever exacerbating or progressing and metastasizing new bad things. We just kind of slowly watched the drug problem grow and increase at various levels in drugs, and our blitheness somehow said to the world of social self-destruction, okay, you aren't hearing me yet, I shall roar louder. Almost like a monster that needs to be fed. Or monstrous political philosophies that come from versions of Marxist dialectics. There's probably a COVID mitigation analog as well. The militant and martinet masking of and isolation of children might be one. There's probably a political analog. In the 1980s, all the rage, and that's the word for it, rage, was to dispense with all the beauty and import and building blocks that came from the teaching of Western civilization. As that movement began by Jesse Jackson so famously at Stanford University and with the elites on board and going about getting rid of it in almost all higher education and then reducing it, knocking it down in elementary and secondary education. The move became the introduction of critical race theory and neo-Marxist notions in our curricula. And then it became mandated. That is what I call the left wing dialectic. Think CRT in our schools. First, when it's pointed out, they deny the problem. Then, when it becomes so obvious it can't be denied, they defend it and blame the messenger and accuser. And then they move on to mandate it. Wasn't that how it worked? We were told CRT, critical race theory, was not to be found in our schools. It was a conservative buzzword that it was only found in law schools. Then it became obvious that we were right. It was in our schools. And the effort was to defend it. And if someone like Ron DeSantis wanted to excise it, he was erasing black history, don't you know? So the effort then became to mandate it. That's the dialectic, isn't it? Deny the problem because it can't and won't stand up to public scrutiny, then when it is unavoidably obvious to defend the problem and then defame its critics. And then commence the effort to enforcing the mandate of it. We did that with COVID mitigation too, didn't we? We do it with everything, it seems like. I'm here reminded of something Dennis Prager speaks frequently about. Those who don't fight evil are nearly as complicit as those who commit it. He wrote, wrote about this once, saying, those who don't fight the greatest evils will fight lesser, lesser evils or make believe evils. Hugh Hallman was yesterday quoting C.S. Lewis talking about those who run for the fire extinguishers when there's a flood. Dennis Prager would write, this happens to be the morally defining characteristic of the left. During the Cold War, many liberals and nearly all conservatives fought communism. But the left, they fought anti-communism. The left opposed American military buildups and regarded the Cold War between America and the Soviet Union as nothing more than two scorpions in a bottle fighting to the death. They loathed Presidents Nixon and Reagan, not Communist Party Secretary General Brezhnev. They regarded Reagan's labeling of the Soviet Union as an evil empire with contempt. After all, the only right thing for an American to point his or her finger at when seeing evil was to be or is to be America. As for the rest of the world, like today we see with oppression and abuse of human rights from Iran to China, we get not a peep from the Ilan Omars of the world. After all, they reserve their broadcasting and prattling to speak about only America's sins. Back to Dennis, he writes, in a nutshell, rather than fighting evil, the left fights those who fight evil. But to feel good about yourself, you have to fight against something, something bad. And so, since the left doesn't fight real evil, 
has to fight lesser evils or made-up evils. For example, the left relentlessly fights racism in America, even though America is the least racist multiracial society in history. It relentlessly fights sexism in America, the country that has afforded unprecedented equality and liberty to women, women, but it does not fight the terrible sexism that pervades the world's most women-suppressing societies, whether that be in the Muslim world, for example, or elsewhere. There's a lot more on the list of made-up or lesser evils that the left fights instead of fighting true evil. It fights religious Americans, specifically religious Christians and especially evangelicals. Now, that's an enemy worth fighting for, those mean Christians and Jews on the religious right, no? And it fights conservatives, or at least the conservatives who push back. And, of course, it fights global warming. Leftists have convinced themselves that the real fight against evil in the world today is not against communism, it's not against Islamism, it's against carbon emissions. And now we can add statues to the list. The left was AWOL against communism, a movement that took over 100 million lives, and it's AWOL against, left, and it's AWOL against Islamism. But it is in the vanguard of fighting statues and the police and the notion of police and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and anyone with an R under or after their name. It fights every rational concept of social health, cohesion, and composition— and in turn becomes a force of societal and social destruction, division, and decomposition. It does this with crime. It does this with education. It does this with COVID mitigation. It does this with race. It does this everywhere it can. For as Marx loved to quote from Goethe, everything that exists needs to perish or be destroyed. And to them, everything starts with the country that really did become everything, America. I have lamented here and there how we will celebrate our 250th anniversary, coming as it will, in three short years. It will be nothing like our bicentennial. As one of my teachers put it back then, if I may paraphrase, in 1776, this country was nothing and promised to become everything. Having become everything, it now almost looks to promise to become nothing. And the rapidity with which we are now going about accelerates apace, destroying ourselves Maybe we're all on an intellectual horse tranquilizer, and the physical one entering our cities and bodies now is just a residual legatee of the intellectual problem. This, among other reasons, is why I like to point out that the worry about our physical bodies and health requires the reminder that when it comes to our physical bodies and health, we need to start with our brains. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. David is our uh, associate producer in control today, so that means we're probably wearing a political pin. I didn't see what you got. What do you got today, David? It says Symington. Now, who might that be? Symington? Oof, Symington. Well, it certainly could be a governor's race here in Arizona circa 1990, but I'm guessing since it's a political pin and we probably weren't doing a lot of those in those days, maybe that – would it be Stuart Symington? That's right. He ran – he was the senator from Missouri? Yes, very close friends with Harry Truman. 
Yeah, that's right. He ran against John Kennedy for the nomination of the president. You kicked it in. You kicked my brain in gear. He ran for the nomination <laughs> for the presidency against John Kennedy in 1960 with Harry Truman's endorsement, and Kennedy beat him. How am I doing? Very good. Yeah. Is that about right? Truman was never a Kennedy guy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, and then he was succeeded in the Senate by John – oh, gosh, what's his name? Clarence Thomas's old friend, right? Um Blinking on his name, former path, uh, minister, wasn't he? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, about yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I'll think of it in a minute. Everyone else in the audience is screaming that they know who it was. Uh, what was the name of the guy who succeeded him in Senate? He was really close friends with Clarence Thomas. Uh, anyway, all right. Uh, speaking of presidential runs, nice, nicely obscure, nicely, <laughs> yes, very nicely, obscure, nicely brought. But you got it. I got it. Okay. Um, it's going to bother me. Not knowing who succeeded him, I, I will not be able to get through this segment not knowing that. Can you look up who succeeded him in the Senate, John? Well, according to the magic answer book that is Google, yeah, Danforth, John Danforth, John Danforth. That's right, John Danforth. Uh, speaking of quests for the presidency, uh, a new one announced today: uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, such an interesting announcement, uh, and such an interesting person. Uh, he uh, he is known as the anti-woke CEO. Uh, many of you have heard him on Fox News. And I was speaking in my monologue a few moments ago about what we call forces of decomposition. His candidacy is about forces of composition based on really three or four things, faith, patriotism, and family, um, kind of the things we used to take for granted here in America that have become down market commodities. I'd love to play you his. Um, I'd love to p- play you his speech and get uh, his speech, his video announcement, uh, and let and and get your thoughts on on what you think. Um, this is all becoming very interesting now, especially if you attach it in your mind to what Nikki Haley said last week uh, about about a growing uh, hatred towards America. Um, that is coming from the opposition party. And isn't it interesting that both of these people come from Im- Indian immigrant parents um, that moved here? Uh, I think it is. And, you know, it's perhaps a message that comes more poignantly since it comes from them. I don't know. Tell me what you think. We're in the middle of a national identity crisis. Faith, patriotism, and hard work have disappeared only to be replaced by new secular religions like covidism, climatism, and gender ideology. We hunger to be part of something bigger than ourselves, yet we cannot even answer the question of what it means to be an American. Today, the woke left preys on that vacuum. They tell you that your race, your gender, and your sexual orientation govern who you are, what you can achieve, and what you're allowed to think. This is psychological slavery, and that has created a new culture of fear in our country that has completely replaced our culture of free speech in America. And that is why today I am announcing my run for president of the United States. This isn't just a political campaign. This is a cultural movement to create a new American dream for the next generation. To me, the American dream means you believe in merit that you get ahead in this country, not on the color of your skin, but on the content of your character and your contributions. 
It means you believe the people who we elect to run the government are the ones who actually run the government, not a federal bureaucracy that grows like a national cancer that is now metastasizing to the private sector. It means that the best ideas win instead of getting censored. It means you don't have to choose between speaking your mind freely and putting food on the dinner table. It means you believe these ideals form the backbone of the greatest nation on earth that the rest of the world still looks up to as its example. Not the Soviet Union in the last century and not communist China in this one either. That is the new American dream. Ask yourself if you believe in these ideas. I think most of you do. I think most of you believe your neighbors do too. Though you can't be sure because you don't feel free to talk about it anymore. You might disagree with each other about corporate tax rates or about whether ivermectin treats COVID, but those are details. We still agree on our nation's most fundamental principles. At least most of us do. Yet the goal of the ruling party in this country is to convince us that we are divided. Why? So they can accumulate more power for themselves. Well, you know what? I have a dream that we can be one people again. We have obsessed so much over our diversity and our differences that we forgot all the ways we're really just the same as Americans bound together by a common set of ideals that brought together a divided, diverse, headstrong group of people 250 years ago. And I believe deep in my bones that those ideals still exist, and I am running for president to revive them. E pluribus unum. From many, one. That is the dream that won the American Revolution. That is the dream that reunited us after the Civil War. That is the dream that won us two world wars and the Cold War. That is the dream that still gives hope to the free world today. And if we can revive that dream over fractious group identity, then nobody in the world, not a nation, not a corporation, not a virus is gonna defeat us. That is what American exceptionalism is all about. And that is what we will need to revive to save this great nation. Heck of a message, no? I wonder if Peggy Noonan will find that small. Uh, look, I love, I love that message, just as I loved what Nikki Haley said, just as I love what Ron DeSantis has stood for and said and been doing about it when it comes to particularly the classrooms in Florida, just as I loved it when Donald Trump kicked off his presidential quest in 2015 in talking about making America great again. He, by the way, was in East Palestine today delivering uh, delivering uh, food and uh, water packages, and that's what he should be doing. I, he, I, you know, he's not my candidate right now. Um, DeSantis is. It'll be interesting to see how people like Vivek Ramaswamy can do when it comes to debating. They haven't had to debate each other. It'll be interesting to see. But I would rather to see, see Donald Trump doing the kinds of things he was doing today where he looked and sounded, I have to say, he looked and sounded great, rather than violating that vaunted 11th commandment of attacking your fellow Republicans while handing talking points all the while to the Democrats. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Dombrowski is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website, grandcanyonplanning.com, a great website. And that's 
one of the best ways to reach him. He's also the um, host of his own radio show, heard here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. John Dombrowski calling in on the line. How are you today, John? Hey, Seth. How's it going? It's, I'm doing fine. It's a blustery <laughs> day, as A.A. A. Milne might put it, or as uh, yes, we learned yes. from Mary Poppins, but it's uh, we're doing just fine. <laughs> How are you? Blowing I'm out, fantastic. Blowing out some inter- internet grids, I guess, huh? <laughs> a little bit, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Seems like uh, there's a couple of different things going on today with uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, weather issue. Yeah, we're but 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 like the mail, we are uh, not neither rain nor wind nor 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 sleet nor hail will stop us. Rising Never. bond yields rattle twenty twenty stock twenty twenty three stock rally. If anyone can distill that or make it interesting, you can. Tell yeah. me what that means, John. Well, you and I have talked about this over time, but uh, what I am finding sort of interesting, they talk about in this the ten year Treasury. Uh, you know rising close to that 4% range. Uh, what's interesting is we still have what's called an inverted yield curve. Uh-huh. And for those for the listeners out there, what an inverted yield curve would be is, is we've got shorter-term interest rates at a higher rate than longer-term interest rates. And that's not normal, right? Usually the longer the term on on a bond, the higher the rate. Right, right. That's know, the that point of, of, yes, right. That's the point yeah. of the cost of that. Right. Right. So, but now we have, still have an inverted yield curve, but it is starting to narrow okay. that difference. Okay. So, as we see the 10 year Treasury approaching 4%, even though we don't like that, why? Because interest rates go up for all the consumer debt and so forth. But uh, the hope is, is at some point we're going to start to get in line this uh, inverted yield curve and get back to something a little bit more normal. If we do, Again, that would be uh, more in line with what the Fed's trying to accomplish as well as uh, it would be better overall for the consumer longer term. Um, But we're not quite there yet. But this higher yield is, uh, once again, uh, what spooked the markets yesterday. We had quite a sharp pullback yesterday. Yeah. No, that's right. We did. And uh, are we seeing uh, signs of recovery? Yeah, today was a little bit more of, a, I think, a normalized day. We did see the market uh, have a little follow-through on the downside at the beginning of the day, but uh, it worked its way through that. We did see some positive uh, signs, uh, and then basically the market closed relatively flat today. So it didn't have much of a follow-through from yesterday, which I think a lot of Wall Street was looking to see if there was going to be uh, a continued negative bias, which there really wasn't. Uh, John, let me just switch silos in 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 this area of your expertise. I was seeing a headline today that said home sales have fallen for the twelfth straight month. What do you divine from that? What does that give you as an indicator of things? Well, you know, it's interesting. I just I met with uh, uh, someone, this uh, client who is a real estate agent, and uh, they have seen their business drop substantially. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a seller right now in this market, it's going to be a little bit tougher than it has been over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. If you're a buyer, there's obviously a little bit more opportunity out there on the pricing. But we have the challenge, if you're not a cash buyer, Seth, that a a home mortgage right now, a 30-year mortgage, is in the price range of about 7% or close to Can I pause you on that point? Yeah. This is really – this is important, I think, and I think it needs to – it needs to be uh, made real clear. So while it may be a buyer's market, the money and the ability to get that money has become a little difficult, more difficult. Little it's becoming more yeah. expensive to get the money, yeah. even though the prices have come down. Correct. You still need most people still need a mortgage, and the ability to get that mortgage is still somewhat hampered. 
Yes, there's no question about it because, again, the cost of money is higher, so that payment yeah. that you right. would have had is higher, yeah. and therefore, uh, you know, someone has to qualify for yeah. that. And your income may not, you know, give you enough of uh, room to, right. to meet the requirements of the lender. Right. I got So it's you. a bit of a challenge okay. out there for people. Yeah, no, it sounds it. And I, I guess, we, I guess too, with what the Fed is doing, um, probably, probably none of this is going to repair within the next quarter, right? I, I think we have to get through a minimum of another quarter minimum, before we're going to okay. start to see any type of, uh, not even a normalization, because we're something, I guess we're all used to something a little bit abnormal yeah. if you go back over decades. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so. And how we weather it, speaking of weather. Uh, yeah, Thank but we're, you. we're all about now. So that's what <laughs> well, we we're think. all about now, and we are all about now. Thank you, John. Right. Much appreciated, you bet. sir. Securities and Advisory Services Office through Creative One Securities LLC, a member of Finrin Sipican and Investment Advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Creative One Securities LLC, and not affiliated. Thanks, Seth. Thank you, John. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. As per, we do it every Wednesday. We check in with our constitutional law attorney, Brett Johnson. He's a partner at Snell & Wilmer Law Firm, SWLaw.com. Uh, Brett, thanks for being with us. How are you doing today? Good, good. How are you, Seth? Oh, I'm just fine. I'm, um, I'm, it, yeah, this weather thing. <laughs> it's, 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 it's something else, but it's probably harder on you since you have a good head of hair and I don't. So <laughs> probably bothers you more than it bothers me. Let me, uh, let me talk to you about what's under that, uh, that, uh, that shock of hair of yours. Um, your, uh, yesterday, the Supreme Court held a really interesting hearing on free speech and the internet. Tell us what's going on here. Well, it, it actually it trickled into today. Okay. So the last two cases from uh, the United States Supreme Court, the first was uh, Gonzalez versus Google. Mm-hmm. The second one, and I'm going to probably slaughter this name, so I apologize, but Twitter versus Tamina uh-huh. um, is the case they heard today. But okay. let's, let's start with Gonzalez first. And that was a big thing. And both of them, again, very long oral arguments. And as you, you uh, back, back in the day, you, you didn't have these long arguments. I remember arguments. 30 so, minutes tight, and you could be interrupted and lose it. That's how I that, that's That's exactly yeah. right. But, yeah. but, but uh, you know, the COVID and the way the format that they kept yeah. just allows these cases yeah. just, to, just to go on. And, yeah. and I, I feel bad for the attorneys. Once in a blue moon, I feel bad for the attorneys. Yeah, once. Not, not, very, not always. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, but a very interesting case. And, and the Gonzalez case got kind of teased it up. And as a way of background, you know, when the Internet was created, I'm not going to say Al Gore created it, okay. but when the Internet was created a long time ago, Congress what really wanted to encourage the development, thought it was going to be, um, you know, an a, a, a economic and cultural changer, which it has been. I don't think anybody disputes that. And as part of that, they developed what's called the Communications Decency Act mm-hmm. that gave some protections to those companies like a Google or an Apple, Yahoo, even going way back to Pandora and some of those other ones that, that, were, that have no longer um, been around. But you... you um, what it gave was protections and, and basically the utility protections. And, and I know I'm being a little bit here in the weeds, but, you know, the telephone companies, for me making a phone call, the telephone company is not liable for me making a phone call and whatever I say on that phone call. So they wanted to carry that to this So new if you call my and, producer, David, and defame me, I can't sue them. 
You, you can't sue the telephone right, company. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because okay. it's a utility. Anybody right. can use it. Right. And how you use it, that's, that's what the liability right. is. Right. So, but the Communications Decency Act also allowed, though, um, these companies to remove content. Right. So if you're on a flower, you know, you have a flower website and somebody wants to post something, you can remove it because you only want to talk about flowers, you yeah. know? And uh, but it also gave them options for for decency and like hey listen we don't want uh, obscene things mm-hmm. that are that's catered to children yep. on on a website yep. so it gave them that a power to modify what was going on the websites and then also get protection that a normal like New York Times or you or anybody else who's in the journalism media would have to um, be be protected against for libel slander and defamation so that would be on the user so I know that's a very big thing but what we have here people probably know it from Google, is that there's algorithms. And I type in Seth Leibson and up comes your radio show. But everything kind of tied to Seth Leibson. And then again, a couple days later, I come back and I might um, have a different search. And the algorithm is, is now catering me towards more Seth Leibson. So that's, that's the context. I think everybody fully appreciates that. Well, that's what kind of happened in the Gonzalez versus Google case. It was a, um, basically about ISIS. Both of these, these cases were about terrorism and dealing with the anti-terrorism Act, which said prohibits anybody from aiding and abetting terrorism. Mm-hmm. Well, Google's algorithm, allegedly, and I think it was proven, was that it encouraged people, if you were searching for terrorist um, type uh, videos or other um, uh, content on the internet, it then would uh, uh, pr- propose other sites that you can go look at. And, and what Gonzalez was basically saying is, well, now you're not, you're not a utility, you're not a telephone company, you're actually pushing me towards use um, to, towards looking at this and there's a, there's a good movie on this by the way called social dilemma it's on on netflix if you ever wanted to go see this kind of content and and what the the platforms google and the other platforms are saying we, we should still be protected underneath 230 even though our algorithm because we don't we don't put the plugins to the algorithm the algorithm is based off of your search history yeah. so we're not really at fault for that yeah. So whether or not there was an extra step. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the courts do on that. The second case, uh, real quick, on on the, the Tamina case, mm-hmm. it's just straight-up content, mm-hmm. whether Twitter should have removed terrorist-type content, uh, content faster, um, and, and whether by not doing so they aided and abetted in a terrorist no. act. Right. So it's it's a very interesting dilemma as how this is going to go down because you have you know the conservative judges that are worried about censorship, yep. um, but they're also concerned about liability yep. and how many cases are going to be filed in courts on this, and then you have um, the more liberal justices concerned with hey wait a minute they probably should have removed that and in any other type of publication content there would be liability. So are are these platforms really entitled to such liability? The third argument is this is for Congress to to work out and the judges justices shouldn't even be involved. So that's the background. Sorry the, for the No, no, fire it's hose. it's fascinating because it gets into some debates that were live hot and live uh with us and we talked about on this show, I don't know, a year or two years ago when we were talking about updating the Communications Decency Act and that Nettlesome 230 section 230. And there's another angle uh, of where the conservatives wanted to because they were – or some parts of the 
conservative movement. It was a real divide between, you know, a certain segment of it and the more libertarian segment of it. There was a real divide, right, Brad? Is my memory accurate? Because of that whole business of, well, are you merely a neutral platform? Are you merely a dial tone, so to speak? Or are you now becoming a publisher and editor by deciding what can and cannot be said and even editing what can and cannot be said? Are Are you now entering into that more the more of a realm we might think of as the realm of the New York Times, let's say, right? That, that's right, and or on on you know kind of censorship. Uh-huh. And, you know, the tele- yeah. the telephone company is a I mean is a, is a utility. It's right. recognized as a utility, and right. they can't remove or bar people from right. the, the way Twitter did, right? For example, it, 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 exactly right. with the pre- uh, with President Trump and other people right. taking people out of the, of the equation and not not being there. So it it is that double edged sword that has kind of a little bit for the left and a little bit for yep. the right as yeah. to what is as to what is concerning um so it, it the justices are going to have to grapple with it mm-hmm. i think i'm going to read some tea leaves yeah. here is that if, if if they are having an algorithm that is pushing people towards content and the content is is basically bad and basically encouraging people to take um illegal acts yeah. i think that they're going to probably have a little bit of trouble but yeah. the straight up twitter one on the second case yeah. where it's just that they're posting and they're not using the algorithm yeah i i think that that that's probably where they're going to uh, draw the line yeah yeah, yeah. It, there's no question that they're probably going to very much in either case or if they do any it's not a combined case the two separate cases two two yeah. separate cases but obviously there's going to yeah. be a lot of overlap yeah a lot of overlap my guess i mean what do i know your tea leaves are 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 probably better than mine but my guess is the preferences of all nine members is to have congress deal with it that's that's probably true yeah. and that's that's the easier route yeah. for sure and and probably you know in a democracy the right route i absolutely Love it. Yeah. Perfect. Brett Johnson from the Snell and Wilmer Law Firm, SWLaw.com. Not a sponsor, just a friend and a teacher. Thank you, Brett. Appreciate it very much. You bet. All right. Don't Google me. (laughs) (laughs) Can I Google you and put in negative things so that that becomes the algorithm that people get when they start Googling? Oh, if you looked up Brett Johnson, you looked up toupee or something. (laughs) (laughs) Brett, thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You've probably been hearing me talk a lot about Y-Refi for a while now. And if you still have some questions, I want you to feel free to contact them. And they would happily put you in touch with any number of any number of their very satisfied customers in the Phoenix area who have happily invested with them and been getting great returns for doing so. Folks, how is your IRA doing? Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds and you can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax deferred? That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA and you don't have time and you don't have to pay taxes on the income that you earn. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com, or give them a call. At 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. Friends over at uh, Powerline, uh, who was it, Stephen Hayward? Yes, he always ends his, but doesn't always, often often ends his posts with popcorn time or 
be fun to eat the popcorn, uh, time to make the popcorn and sit back and watch and enjoy what the Democrats are doing. Uh, it seems this week uh, Politico uh, drew the assignment to report the news that Joe Biden might not run again and why his delay in deciding is causing problems for Democrats. You know, when we think and talk about these various candidates on the Republican side who are declaring uh, Ramaswamy today and Nikki Haley last week and Donald Trump a little before that and probably Ron DeSantis and Mike Pompeo, whoever, uh, Mike Pence, others. Um, you know, one of the things that we have to think about is who's, who, who, who is that candidate going to run against on the Democratic side? I mean, we kind of we kind of we kind of think it's Joe Biden, but, you know, he has not announced he's not announced. And it seems to a lot of us, maybe he shouldn't have even announced <laughs> last go round. But the folly of Joe Biden is even greater exponentially. So with the march of time, two years or I guess only one year hence, Joe Biden's closest advisors, according to Politico, have spent months preparing for him to formally announce his reelection campaign. But the president's still not ready to make the plunge. A sense of doubt is creeping into conversations around 2024. What if he decides not to? Maybe we have to start thinking about, uh, you know, who would be the get, the best up against, I don't know, if it's a Gavin Newsom or a Kamala Harris. I think Pete Buttigieg's star is fading awfully fast, but, you know, it's it's never it's never mattered for the Democrats. I think Joe Biden's star faded a long time ago and they still nominated him. Um, if Joe Biden doesn't run, you'll like this, David. Uh, this would be the first time for the Democrats in more than half a century uh, when a sitting Democratic president uh, didn't uh, run for re-election, Lyndon Johnson being the last one. Okay, a lot more coming up. I'm Seth Leaps, and we'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.